Welcome back, Blockheads, to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. I am one of your hosts for this week's episode, Dungeon Master Ian. And I'm DM Neil, aka Joke Maniac. You know what? I do have an aka, although, you know, it doesn't make much sense. It's it's my gamer tag, and everybody knows me by it, Ravenswick. So, you know, we could throw that in there maybe every once in a while, aka Ravenswick. Yeah! But this week, we have a great episode lined up for you guys. But before we actually get into that, we have some five-star reviews. The first of which is entitled... A Spring of Inspiration, and of course, it's five stars, by what we assume to be the abbreviation for brother, B-R-O period, Paul. I don't know. There's a lot of other options that could be, like the, they could be from the Baton Rouge Observatory, you don't know, or they could be a, a founding <laughs> member of the Biker's Rights Organization, or they could love bromine monoxide. Why they would, I don't know. Bromine monoxide. I am just going to make the assumption that it is Brother Paul, and he says, I've been listening to the DMB for quite some time now, and I am happy to give this show my highest recommendation. DMs Mitch and Chris take time to come up with some of the most creative and inspiring ideas for DMs that I have found on any medium. They have a true passion for both this podcast and the game of Dungeons & Dragons in general. If you are a game master of any kind, this show is the perfect resource for creating and developing your RPG world. Tune in and let these guys open your eyes to all the many, many possibilities. Thank you for your hard work, DMB. Brother Paul, thanks for that great review. We really appreciate it. I'm glad that you've uh, sunk your teeth into the Dungeon Master's block. That's awesome. Yes, thank you for your work as the budget responsible officer wherever you are. So the <laughs> next one we have is from Himu Shin, and it's entitled Inspirational Stuff, Five Stars. Finally getting around to doing the review rounds on the 50-some podcasts I listened to, which I understand their, their plight. Yes. But this one is really a diamond in the rough. The hosts of the DMs block always have great guests and cover great topics that help me think about fantastic storytelling opportunities in my game. I'll be lucky to implement half of the stuff they've inspired me to feverishly jot down in a notebook while I'm at work. Check them out if you're at all interested in some solid DMing advice. Well, thank you, Himushin, and yeah. hopefully we don't get you in trouble at work. I also carry around a notebook in my back pocket. So there you go. There you go. So, but with that out of the way, let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat back on the menu, boys. Well, today we are talking with Bruce Cordell, the senior designer at Monty Cook Games, and he is going to be here to talk to us about ruin building. But before we do that, Neil, we've got our interview questions, don't we? Well, also, I want to take a quick second to say that he is also the author of my favorite adventure module of all time, The Sunless Citadel. So, Yes, that's a good one. Now that yeah. we've got that out of the way, <laughs> yeah. we're, going, we're going to ask you the most ambiguous question and whatever you want to do to fill in the answer. Bruce, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, thank you guys first for having me on. I really appreciate the time. I'm a long time 
a designer of games and a writer of some novels. I started working in the industry freelance like in 93, started working at TSR in 95, wrote a copious amount of material throughout four editions worth of D&D. And thank you, Neil. Yes, I also really enjoyed writing some of Citadel. But in, uh, let's see, 2013, I, I finally left Wizards after a wonderful, wonderful run and joined my friend Monty Cook and his company and started working on Numenera, The Strange, Invisible Sun, and, and all that jazz. So that's, that's kind of where I am right now. Oh, I, and I released my 10th novel this year, which was tied in, as most of my novels are, to game worlds. This one to The Strange called uh, Myth of the Maker. And uh, right now, I guess, just to add one last thing, we're heads down in the middle of a, a Kickstarter for Numenera 2. And uh, that's going really well since we're only about halfway through. And we hope, uh, we hope, we have faith that we'll break the original Numenera record for a Kickstarter funding. Oh, I hope so. Because you are definitely well on your way as of the time of this recording. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Yes, you already sort of hit this, but uh, other than Numenera 2, are you working on anything else that we should know about? We're actually also in the middle of getting the uh, files that we're working on for Invisible Sun, another game that we're producing at MCG. This week is the week we have to get everything done to get the files to the printer, and so we're kind of in this mad dash of final proofing of indexes and spellings and you know all the page placements, all that sort of thing. So that's kind of what we're working on. And uh, we're going to get that over the finish line, we hope, um, by uh, tomorrow uh, tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be quite a quite a process. Yeah, I agreed <laughs> to do this uh, this podcast, which, of course, is great. I'm happy to do it before I realize, like, hey, I've got to step away for an hour to uh, to, to talk to, to, to dun- Dungeon Block, right? I'm not dungeon it. Master's Block. Yep. Dungeon Master's Block. And I did get it wrong. Right. <laughs> I, had a, I had a Dungeon Master's Block. Yeah. <laughs> Well done. Well, hopefully you'll be able to help us and our listeners get rid of that dungeon master's block. Uh, and for go. our last uh-huh. for our last question, <laughs> we as we always do with our guests, we have a surprise question, and we always get them from our wonderful Patreon supporters. And this one comes from I thought I could do this with a straight face, and I cannot, but it comes from DM Deadly Sprinkles. <laughs> And their question to you is, what's your favorite pet you've ever given a player or had a player try to obtain? Favorite pet that I've given to a player? Let's see. Well, you know, since, since it, you brought it up to my head, in my, to my mind, there, there was a pet I tried to give all the players in, uh, who played my adventure, Sunless Citadel, and that was the little tiny ice dragon. There was a clan of... Um, Kobolds in Sunless Citadel, and one guy had a had a problem because he was looking their their kind of pet uh, ice dragon uh, hatchling had gotten out, and so he was trying to find it. So the players had the opportunity, although I'm not sure many actually ever followed me up down that lead to actually try and get a, an ice dragon hatchling for their own pet. I know I had a set that did. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So today we are going to be continuing our world building series, and and we're talking about a very special topic, one that is near and dear to my heart, ruins. Uh, Not the type you write with. So the reason we have Bruce on is because with Numenera, ruins are, I would say, everything. Living in the ninth world, there are eight other civilizations that have come and gone, and there are ruins to represent all of those. 
that I feel that that's accurate. But with you here, Bruce, do you have more insight into the world of Numenera specifically to kind of give our player players? Wow. I can't not be a dungeon master when I talk, apparently, to give our <laughs> listeners a little bit of a background on that that setting and kind of where you're coming from with your thought on, on ruins. Yeah, sure. I, you're, you're definitely right. Uh, Numenera, in some ways, is, is all about ruins, although it's also about kind of building a new world in the uh, aftermath of these eight previous civilizations to kind of give you a sense of... Um, the mood, like like you said, there's been eight worlds before ours, you know, and over a billion years, eight times people of the Earth have built up amazing civilizations that lasted, who knows, millennia, and then, you know, failed and went away. You know, they, they transcended, they traveled through space, they reshaped the world and creatures, and they built cities and machines that have since crumbled to dust. In fact, the dust... There's not really soil on Numenera so much anymore. Something called drit, which is the ground down uh, elements of a billion years of civilizations rising and falling on Earth. And uh, yeah, so Numenera is is kind of the people. Humans are back for some reason. We don't quite, you know, it's never quite explained how that could have happened, but they are, and uh, they're they're they kind of live in a medieval sort of society, generally speaking. And so to them. These amazing edifices and structures and crazy things, for the most part, are are akin to magic and sorcery. Nice. Yes, and it, it's a ton of fun to play in. So, it, it is a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. Granted, when I because I hang out with Rich Howard too much, when I have someone run me through things, it's Troy Pitchelman uh-huh. who does the Cipher Speak podcast. So I don't mess around when I play a game. <laughs> so I guess the big question to kind of kick it off and we can all go around the table as it were is like one of the things you have to answer and whether or not that answer goes to your players that's neither here nor there but you as the DM need to know who lived there like who were these ruins from and just kind of just our thoughts on how to build that backstory and how to share that with your players. Okay, so you're you're saying who lives who lived there? Oh, right. So you know that is an interesting sort of mindset that Numenera has that kind of goes against my previous 18 years of writing D and D modules, which is it's actually not in in our interest for the most part, not always, to care who built this weird thing and why. It's enough to say this is freaking weird. So we, do, we try and present just these, these situations and these experiences, and we may in the back of our heads kind of have an idea, yes, there's a singularity that's, that's powering this machine, oh, maybe there is some sort of dimensional rift here. But you know, when your players walk into this chamber and the wall is reflective, and they see themselves except their face is that of a stranger, and they look away and they look back and it's a stranger but a different stranger, and they're just freaking out and they're attacking the wall, you know, you know, there's some sort of psychic face blindness thing at work. You know, based maybe on technology and our understanding of neurobiology, face blindness being you don't even recognize your own face in this particular case. But we we often don't, um, other than to to suggest that it was one of these eight great previous civilizations for Numenera. Then we can go and talk about uh, you know other worlds. But we try and just we try not to spend too much time bending over backward to describe what it was before. We want to describe what it is now and how that might very well freak out your players. See, the thing is, human minds probably can't even understand 
or conceptualize what this thing was, right? Because these civilizations, for the most part, were like these crazy artificial intelligences or these beings that transcended biology and existed in, with huge brain cases, right? So the human mind is like, I don't know what this is, but I know if I do X, Y will happen. Although maybe, you know, Jane's head will explode explode as well right i don't know why but uh, <laughs> but it's happening so that's the weird i guess to put quotes around it the weird of numenera yeah i think that that for me you know i i guess it's because i come from a, a D and like like you a heavy D D background and reading things like lord of the rings and the wheel of time and and those sorts of grand novel adventures i like to establish who lived here because that informs my concept of what the ruins should look like. If it's a if it's a culture that's based on like Roman ideals, it's going to look different than a culture that's based on Persian ideals, or you know, and those inform my decisions as to what kind of traps are there, what kind of creatures are there, what kind of uh, languages they're going to find, what you know, all those sorts of ideas. And I like to get down to that nitty gritty because in my core, I'm a world builder, and I love those sorts of ideas. And it allows your players to ask those sorts of questions if they know as a DM you like to get down in that sort of micro sphere of ruin building. And you're also not caught off guard. You know, your player's not going to be like, well, what is, what's that? And you're like, um, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but you're, you're actually able to give an answer. Well, that's because this happened. And, but I like to get down to that, that base level of, you know, here's who lived here and here's, you know, they suffered some sort of doom, and I might leave the doom mysterious, but you know it's a cool way to teach your player's history about a place in your world because like for example, my world is tidally locked now, but it wasn't always, and so when they see depictions of a rising and setting sun, they're very confused because they 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 know the sun always stays in the same place in my world, like it doesn't move. So, you know, to see those sort of depictions and inform the players about history when walking through ruins is, is a big part of my world building mechanic. I mean, I really like the base concept from Numenera mixing it in with D&D now. I'll be the bridge. Here we go. The idea that Numenera is so old is very intriguing to me because I feel like, and I mean, definitely if either of you have thoughts on it, like a lot of D&D worlds don't feel as old and i think that's one of the cool things about numenera is that the world just is old it's very old because it has to be because that's you know if you're going to be a billion years that's a long time so i like the idea of giving players a ruin that they can't figure out and then the core concept is what do they find there you know the monsters and the the magic and the things like that and i think it'd be a cool place to spin off and like start an entire adventure of trying to reverse engineer what happened these millennia ago in this place. The thing about places that are really, really old, like you say, Numenera, like it's, you know, can we, can we think what happened a million years ago? I mean, human beings are, you know, not even necessarily a million years old, genetically speaking. But yes, you know, in the last 500 years, what's moved in here? What, what have humans moved in here? Have, have tribes of abhumans, as we call them in Numera, moved in? What have they done? Has some like sort of nano, a, a person who was a scholar of the Numenera moved in and lived there for the last 2,000 years and started finding out that they could like clone themselves in various ways, right? So there's, there's culture and there's history. Um, so I, I guess maybe I kind of oversold the fact that you wouldn't have 
what's going on now and, and how you can learn and, and you know and, and gain knowledge of your world around you. It's just like it kind of exists at two different scales. And what's happened in the last few hundred years or even few thousand years is certainly something players can can try and wrap their minds around and learn from and, and you know make make a plan for and strategize about. Yeah, I once I would, like speaking of bridging, like I know this sort of gets into a different topic, but it, it could be the ruins that you're talking about that you know, bridging that sci-fi with fantasy, I think is really a really cool way to do it. I've I've long thought about doing like a campaign where or you know, even making my own setting, like the people who can actually do magic, it's not magic per se, but they're they're able to control nanobots in the atmosphere to affect certain right. things. And I think that's like a really cool idea. You know, it's not that there's magic per se, but you know, they just have an attunement to the technology that's still on the world and able to manipulate that in certain ways. That's exactly what nanos do in yeah. Numenera, right? That's that's their shtick. I like that all that made me think of was the old show Beast Wars. Yeah. When, <laughs> because they crash land when like the first Neanderthals are coming into the world and then it's just them being like the super advanced race of robots like terrorizing. Uh, I said terrorizing. That's too close to what they say in the show. But they're going through the world and just leaving all this ruin that people would find countless years later. Bruce, you already kind of transitioned into the next question that we want to ask is who lives there now? And you know, that's very important. I mean, it could be, though, that your players step into a ruin that has nothing in terms of physical and living creatures. But I think it is also really cool to have that extra layer, like you kind of had mentioned, that here are the people that have been here living a couple hundred years. One, you know, and For whatever reason, you're going to now remove them, and then you can find those other layers that we mentioned before. But a big question to kind of toss around and answer is, like, how do we decide who lives in these ruins already? I like to look at, at at a ruin as not sort of this pristine sandbox, but sort of like I'm assuming it's not you know completely sealed away as part of an ecosystem. And what kind of life has infiltrated it? What kind of creatures, tribes may have infiltrated it? Right. So any anything that is of interest or will provide shelter, or will have treasure, right, will will draw interest of things other than just the explorers, right. So you might have tribes of you know D and D goblins and hobgoblins and you know whatever kobolds. Ogres, what have you, humans that might exist or be trying to get in there. There might be fights or even, you know, skirmishes over a ruin that actually seems to have a lot of, of wonderful things that you might be able to pull out of it, whether that's magic or technological or both. And, you know, depending on where you put it, that, that, that'll be, those different things will happen in different ruins. Right. Well, you know, and I, I went to Israel over the summer, uh, on a trip with my school and it's interesting to see even in the real world how that works because you know you can go to a dig site in israel and you can see you dig through a foot of rock and you're back a thousand years you know you go two feet it's like 1500 years so it's like you can you can see the you know templars on top of ancient jerusalem on top of you know rome on top of you know you can peel back those layers to, to establish the history, but somebody always moves in on top of a city that's been destroyed. And there's that adaptation of culture, those, that adaptation of ideals. And, you know, depending on, on who moves there, like, like Bruce was alluding to, whether it's, you know, gnomes, dwarves, whatever, 
it's going to look a little different. Uh, you know, the gnomes and the dwarves might be attracted to something that's a little bit more technologically advanced, you know, because they like to tinker and they like to do sort that, those sorts of things. And I think that, you know, knowing what attracts certain races, certain things can also help you decide what the ruins were. So like I said, if you have a gnome who wants to be an engineer or something like that, and there's ruins that happen to be like, you know, really advanced but old and, and you know, from a long lost civilization – Gnomes might set up shop there to figure out how they can use that technology and reverse engineer it a little bit. I mean, I don't know what I feel like you're just inspiring so much in me, Bruce, that I want I want so many more layers on my ruins now that the idea I just had was that I think you had mentioned essentially like these people fighting over it and skirmishes brought to my mind in these large battles. But why would that be? So it's a set of ruins that no one's been able to enter. You almost have like ruins in front of the ruins of all the people that have tried to be there and open it. And anyway, and so like you get through the set of ruins and all these skirmishes and these battles for your players to finally open these set of ruins that haven't been opened for whatever crazy long amount of time. But I just love that layering that we're discussing. Like I think that's what makes ruins cooler. Or more interesting is not just the, that surface level presentation of them, but then peeling back those layers, just like you said in our real world, Ian. You know, and pe- peeling back foot after foot, and essentially millennia after millennia. And I think that's what can make ruins very, very interesting in your game. Well, you know, here's here's another idea, another spinoff. I know we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves, but you know, we've all got this like font of of youth sort of idea in the back of our heads, and maybe it's one of those battles. The, the the ruins people are fighting over is a f- fountain of youth or fountain of healing. And to bridge that sci-fi sort of idea, maybe it's just something simple like a regeneration tank, you know, but it presents because of the ruins, because of the way it looks and the way it's built up, it presents like a magic pool of water, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, you can, you can really play with some cool stuff like that, especially if you've got the very old being technologically advanced and the very new being sort of medieval. Are you guys uh, familiar with the, the, the Tolis, the world of Tolis? came out many years ago, campaign setting by Malhavik Press. Well, it's, uh, so it basically, it was this massive world that, um, P-T-O-L-U-S, um, that this massive dungeon complex that a city had built up around that was kind of like a boom town. It started off as a boom town of adventurers coming. It was a fantasy world of adventurers coming to uh, you know, explore these, this vast underground set of ruins and, and then over time this entire city built up and a large part of the economy of the city was based on the fact that adventurers would actually go down lower and lower and bring out these wonders and dangers and you know crazy things like that so that was a that was a fun setting it was based on third edition rules uh came okay. out yeah, yeah came out right after uh, third edition came out by uh, well <laughs> so monty left wizards uh, yep. <laughs> really early on right so that was his first uh, his first one of his first forays that's awesome i'll have to look at that because that that sounds exactly that, that sounds cool that sounds a lot like a lot of fun yeah it looks i mean i immediately used used some google foo and it looks really good i mean it also won in any the year after it came out so i think it's doing pretty good for itself at that time yeah <laughs> it was a while ago yep 2006. But yeah, that's definitely a good one to point people to. So one of the other things that is always important in ruins, I feel like in D&D games anyways, is 
the monsters that live there. Bruce, you had already alluded to it, the cl- some of the classics, the goblins and hobgoblins. I mean, and then, of course, going back to the Sunless Citadel and having the kobolds in there. And again, that was a great example of layered ruins as well in that module. But uh, what are some monsters that we, you, we could think of to put in there that are kind of off the beaten path, if you will? Uh, off the beaten path. Well, I was going to say my one of my favorites, which is totally right down the center of the of the path, is you know okay. the, the wizard who, uh, or you know mm. evil Nano or whatever, who said, "Hey, there is some you know vast power source here. Maybe there's a dimensional rift or something that will power my spells or or allow me to transcend this human existence." Right, and so they they set up shop, and of course they don't want anyone else coming in, so they set up traps, whether they're magical or technological or whatever. The reason I like some sort of like evil mastermind, or not necessarily evil, but powerful wizard or, or a similar entity in this squatting in the center of a, of a dungeon is because it sort of allows the dungeon or ruin to come alive in a way, right? Because there's actually someone who's trying to keep tabs on explorers like the adventurers, trying to count, send out countermeasures to them, maybe even sending out forces to intercept them at key choke points. So... To have someone like on the inside kind of knowing how things works kind of makes a dungeon reactive and dangerous in a way that sometimes ruins are not, right? You're just like, oh, we'll just go and we'll go sleep in this room, right? It's like, okay, well, I know you're sleeping in that room, so I'm going to you know, send my forces <laughs> of ogres to you know, break open that door at 2 a.m. and kill everybody. Another really, I love steampunk. It's one of my favorite genres, and I think Tome of Beasts for 5th Ed has some really cool clockwork creatures in it. I think clockwork creatures are, are things that aren't used as often as I maybe would like to see them used, especially if it's like a, a more steampunky civilization. Uh, I immediately get thrown back to like Skyrim, you know, the Dwemer ruins where they've got sort of those clockwork ideas rolling around the ruins and, and those sort of things. I like steampunk-esque type things. So clockwork guardians, spiders, you know, all those sorts of creatures. And to have somebody at the helm, I mean, that, that, that makes it all the more deadly because it's not just automated. There's somebody actually maliciously trying to get you out and or kill you. So they can deploy, and you can play that smartly as a DM. You can deploy the creatures where they're going to do the most effect, the most damage, you know, and try to mess with your players a little bit. I like that. Although I do like you, t- Bruce, taking us down that classic road with having the magic user because I feel like that opens up a lot of doors in terms of what could be brought in because, like you said, dimensional rifts or you know, if they were some kind of technomancer and they're the one that can keep up these clockwork entities and keep them running and doing all those things. And also just like animated objects is another fun one. I feel like I haven't seen them as much in 5th edition, but once your players start cutting apart every table, you know you're doing it right as a DM <laughs> in my mind. I think that if you have a theme for your dungeon, creatures will sort of follow, right? If if there's some sort of weird bioorganic sludge at the center of your uh, maybe that's spawning you know, some sort of of creatures that, you know, are just these horrific masses of bioorganic sludge, or maybe sometimes they suck creatures in and spit out versions of those creatures. So, right, but that's just that one dungeon, right? But any sort of weird quirk you would have in your ruin, any sort of weird technology or, or curse or magic could flavor potentially, you know, some large percentage of the encounters that player characters would have as, as they're moving through that dungeon. And hopefully 
be something new to them. Yeah, that makes me want to put xenomorphs in the middle of my dungeon. Yes. <laughs> or or even even, you know, I mean this is really tropey, but it's D D, right? Illithids. If illithids at the center of the ruin, maybe you're talking like that dimensional rift. I mean that that's like I said, it's sort of tropey, but like it's cool. I mean it's a good an illithid wizards. Yeah. <laughs> so the next thing that we have to talk about is discovery in ruins. I feel like uh Bruce, you might have a lot to talk about, seeing as how one of the two books coming out for Numenera two is entitled Discovery. <laughs> and it's one of the things that is all about Numenera and finding things. So I guess kind of a discussion of like what do we think are good things to put into a ruin to have your players find? Well, so to talk specifically in Numenera 2, we are adding an entirely... There's, there's the original core book, which is 414 pages, and we're adding a new core book, a companion core book, which is another 414 pages. And that book is basically, just to a large extent, about the things that you find within these ruins that you can bring out and build new communities of your own. In this particular case, for Numenera, the things that the ancients used to create all their stuff, the people of the Ninth World call iodum, which is basically special components. And they've learned to recognize these various things, whether they're protomatter or apt clay or synth steel. You know, they have all these names for them. They're sort of medieval-sounding. There's a few like cosmic foam or data orbs, which are, are more sci-fi-sounding. But they started to learn that they can go into ru these ruins and salvage this, this weird, you know, machines and strange uh, vehicles and, and come out and using plans they've learned to um, interpret, start creating some of these installations and vehicles and, and crazy devices of their own in order to, to build up new communities of their own. So that's, so that's one thing uh, as a twist that you would go uh, to go into ruins to find is basically components to come out and create a better world for yourself on the on the outside to 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 actually advance civilization in your own world, medieval city or whatever. Yeah, that got my mind. That got my mind going too much, especially like thinking about the idea of going back in. You have this regeneration chamber. You know, and what that changes what ailments the world sees. You know, what I mean, the life of everyone is longer. Like, what is hurting people and killing them? Be it you know, disease or attacks or anything like completely changes. I love the idea of being able to find something that just genuinely makes the world a better place rather than just making your character sheet have higher numbers. Right. I mean, that's the classic, right? And that's what motivates us as players still to this day, you know, yep. however old I am, but it motivated me when I was 13 too, right? To, to say, I want a magic plus three sword, and maybe I can find it in this ruin, and maybe it'll have a special power, right? And that's fantastic. And I think that ruins should always offer that player reward. But to, to come up with uh, uh, things that, that can go beyond that is also interesting, right? Sometimes a ruin will have uh, someone who's gotten lost in it, right? And that's a, a story-based reason to go in. Sometimes it will have items you need to, to save the town. You know, maybe the town water purifier has broke. You need to go in and find some parts all the way up to this whole idea now we're advancing for Numenera 2, which is like, yes, we know there are these special components, there are the crazy micro-treasures that we can get, and we can actually build a civilization of our own given, you know, long-term play. So I, I think there's lots of different levels. One of my favorite mobile games, and I know mobile games get a bad rap for, you know, a bunch of different reasons, but I loved this game mostly because it was a hack and slash that actually had some cool lore behind it, was Infinity Blade. 
And it was based in a fantasy setting, but you had this sort of tech background to it that was awesome. Uh, so each of the weapons learned as they leveled up. You know, you got better bonuses and things like that. But the the core was you're the hero, and when you die facing the God King, you know you come back X number of of years later, and you're reborn. Well, why are you reborn? And and you might kill the God King, but unless you have a special weapon to kill the God King, he's just gonna come back because he's got this cloning thing, and you have to have this special weapon to kill him so he can't come back. And I think that that's a cool idea that you can incorporate in a lot of ways in D&D, especially if you're, you know, in the books that this game spawned off, you've got the idea of like they're this advanced race and they've got, you know, uh, they each have their own spaceship that's got like their cloning regeneration chamber on the inside. You know, so you've got some of those cool things. I think another thing that players could find in the ruin is there's some sort of external technology or magic that is going awry. And it's ancient and people know it's ancient and they have to go down into the ruin that sort of matches the same style to find what is going wrong with the technology or the magic and fix it. And that's what drives them down into the ruins to learn more about the culture, the history of these people, how they used magic or technology to, and magic and technology can be the same thing in a medieval setting, you know, to figure out how to undo what's being done so their world doesn't get destroyed. We need to just put a bunch of monsters in there, too. I'm just saying. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the other big thing for, and I feel like we've kind of all hit around it, but just to point directly at it is the other big thing is knowledge. Yeah. Knowledge is power in the D&D world and in the real world, and having that be what's inside of there. You know, and it could be just the knowledge of a better technique and make it, that makes the world a better place or the knowledge of that next step. You know what I mean? It, depending on where your players are, getting that piece of knowledge and then going to the real ruin or you know, the better ruin to find that plus five Holy Avenger because you know you want it or just a Vorpal sword. Let's get more Vorpal weapons. Come on. So that's another thing that <laughs> that's another thing that I think is really important to put in there is knowledge rather than just, again, more magic items. I think that's 100% right, and, and often, you know, lore, yeah, people enjoy that. They enjoy learning. They, they're exploring because they want to learn something. I think another thing that's sort of related to that, although it's more meta because a, I don't think a, a, a character in the world would necessarily say this, but and maybe even a player character wouldn't say this, but for a lot of players, they just want an interesting, fun experience, right? They want their mind to be like, whoa. Didn't expect that, or ooh, that's weird, or they want to be slightly scared as, as much as possible, right? So, so providing that weird twist or that weird experience that they weren't quite expecting is something that players, you know, kind of desires either consciously or subconsciously. So that, that's an important thing to, to kind of think about as well when you're building a ruin for, for your players to go through. Definitely. So I was going to say, I, I, I wrote a book recently, and I think you and Darcy were talking about this was shows the, uh, um, the the Jade Colossus, which is Ruins of the Prior Worlds, which is basically my attempt to create a really the most robust dungeon uh, building random generation system that I'd ever seen. And so there's like 30 or so pages filled with, you know, hundreds probably of just weird, interesting things that allow you to create a, uh, a ruin. And it's not just for, I mean, it's, it's flavored for Numenera, but it's basically, 
you could use it for any setting because it's you know the descriptions are relatively mechanic free so you would have interstitial spaces within these vast ruins you might have vaults you might have matter leaks or energy leaks just weird chambers weird things you would find types of creatures you might find that have inhabited it right it's just it's 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 I, I would like to use it as a prompt, though. I mean, just to slavishly follow what the roles come about kind of leads it devoid of story. But if you make two or three different roles, and you're as you're creating things, you start you start kind of your mind starts kind of pulling together a story of what's going on, and that's why I I use it as a as a really enhanced story prompt as opposed to just saying, okay, well that's the dungeon or that's the ruin. <laughs> Let the dice decide and do nothing else. So it's something that if people are interested in, in it, if that sounds interesting, you know, check it out. We have it. Well, there's PDFs of it, and of course, it's a it's a hardbound book that we just came out with. It's, uh, it's 144 pages. It looks nice. yeah. I just looked it up. It looks great. And the thing that it made me think of, and hopefully, it's an analogy that a lot of people will understand, either through magic or through other games. For me, it's Hearthstone and going into the arena and building a deck is a great way to approach using something like this to build a dungeon. And when it offers you three choices, pick which one you think fits best with the choices you've made previously. You know, you don't have to be beholden to, I rolled 62, that's what's in there, that's what we're doing, nothing else is going to happen. But look at what's gone before to make the choices going forward. And I think it's a great way to build a random dungeon that would be very engaging for your players. And now... Bruce is just trying to take all my money by telling me all these things. <laughs> no, I think that's right. I mean, the, the, if you want to use prompts, I, I, I'm a huge believer in using prompts when I uh, design, right? It, it, you know, whatever can give me prompts, then I can spin it off into, you know, a completely fresh new idea. But having the prompt there in the first place is, uh, is really fun and, and really useful for me. Yeah, and, and, you know, prompts also help us get around writer's block, you know? When you're trying to create a new spin on a kobold layer, you know, yeah. you add you, you add a baby uh, white dragon. Yeah, there you go. Or either <laughs> die to or make their best friend. Well, awesome. <laughs> Those are the two options. There, we both know, we all know it, and that's it. There's nothing else. There's there's no middle ground. They either make it their best friend or they are dead. So with that though, the other question we have for you, Bruce, is where can people go to find you? And find everything you're doing and just generally where should they go to check out things that you want them to check out? You know, they could go to brucecordell.com, although that, I don't, that's my kind of blog. That's kind of my touchstone, but I'm, I'm more active on my Twitter or Facebook. So if you go to Twitter slash Bruce Cordell, you'll kind of get more of a day-to-day -day look at what I'm up to. The blog kind of has more of a background and, you know, every so often I'll make a post of some sort, right? But I, I don't post nearly as often as I did many years ago. Also on Facebook, you can find me on Facebook as well. And those are the main places. Also on Google Plus if you're a Google Plus person. And we'll have links to all of those in the show notes. But I think that'll do it for us. But again, I just want to thank you, Bruce, for coming on yeah, and sharing with much. us all of your vast knowledge of all things ruins. Neil and Ian, thank you so much. I had a great time talking to you both about this topic. Well, that's been a great conversation with Bruce, but now, before the end of the episode, we're going to toss it to the mailbag. But they've been asking for their mail on a daily basis. It's all they're talking about up there. That darling. right there is the mail. Now, let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail with you all day, okay? So DM, Neil, and I are actually going to tag team this mailbag, and it is from 
DM Dan. Which is actually DM Exitium, one of our Patreon dragons. Woohoo. He says, hey guys, to deal with dirty, no good sheet peekers. A wonderful guys- term coined by none other than hashtag Magic Mark. Yes. Do you guys ever ask for a player's character sheet and change their alignment quietly at the table behind the DM screen? I've done that a time or two now and told my players, do what you think you would do without thinking of alignment. That is not a guideline for how to behave, but rather an indicator of your recent behavior. So they don't change their alignments. I change it for them based on what they are doing, and they jealously guard their sheets once I do this. We still have sheet peeker problems, though. Keep on sowing distrust among your players. That's awesome. Uh, I will say that I've only done this a few times, and either that's because, yes, the change in behavior and the way that they are playing does not match what they've been doing. So if somebody's like, yeah, I'm chaotic good, but they're tending more toward lawful good, I might be like, yeah, let, let's change that. I don't, I don't necessarily do it in secret. I might talk to them about it later. But when I do it in secret is when they're possessed by some sort of cursed or magical item that is influencing them in some way. Or And I, I don't necessarily change it on their character sheet because they can get out from underneath that curse. But I will like privately tell them or message them or text them saying, here's how this is working right now. You are under the control of this item and it is influencing your alignment in this way. Play it. I like it. Well, yeah, and also going and adjusting things is definitely something I do. It's getting players character sheets and then jotting down notes based on theirs their stats and all kinds of different things. That way I know what it is without having to ask them. And then I can ask them for a role rather than ask them for a specific role. And then I really do like the idea of subtly changing their alignment and then giving it back to them. Because again, we have discussions on it, but yes, an alignment is a very fluid thing. So definitely go in and change it when you see fit and change it in secret. Boom. That's all we have for you today here at the Dungeon Master's Block. But if people want to get a hold of us, Ian, where could they go? You guys can email us at Dungeon Master Block. That's Dungeon Master Block with no S at gmail.com. And if you like the show, if you enjoy it and you want to give us a review, it really helps boost our visibility, especially those five stars. You can head over onto iTunes or Stitcher. And use those five-star buttons and your keyboard and or whatever to leave us a five-star review. And it will air on an upcoming future episode. Yes. And if you wanted to head over to Twitter, you could follow us at DMS underscore block. That's at DMs block. And of course, you can like us over on Facebook where you can follow us and see all the memes and updates that we post. But before we go, we have the thing we always do. And that is highlight a Patreon dragon. And today's shout-out goes to... Eric yeah. yeah. Dude, Eric, thanks so much for your patronage. He is a silver dragon. And uh, he's going to be ripping it up through the forums. It's going to be awesome. This podcast is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network. If you like this show... Check out others like the GM Showcase and Geek Wars, We're So Bad at Adventuring, and more. And again, we just want to thank you for listening to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, 
and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. I'm DM Neil. Good night. Good luck. And this is DM Ian saying, we'll see you in two weeks. So what are, oh, I lost my, I totally lost my train of thought because I got too focused, <laughs> too focused on searching that and looking into it. Goodbye.